0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is the 18th of the 12th. I hope you've all been well since we last spoke. I don't know why I'm raising my voice at the end of every line like a teenage girl. I just noticed it as I was talking, Michael. Kind of kind of, really threw me off my flow there. It's, it's something, is it the East Australian inflection something?
1: It was noted first... That it, i think it developed simultaneously sort of what they call parallel evolution in uh the on the west coast of the United states and in parts of australia this that tendency uh, to go up at the edge of sentences isn't that right well actually that doesn't work because that is a question so oh you know what it
0: means honestly i just i was just setting you up for a quick joke michael and instead you tried to teach people something. You sicken me.
1: I'll never do it again, I promise.
0: Well, I think that's something we can all aspire to on this podcast. So there is a... What I actually primarily wanted to talk about today is the new report that came out from the Department of Justice on hate speech and hate crime. It comes from the public consultation on the Incitement to Hatred Act. We will get to that. However, there's two things I want to run through quickly first. One is a new position paper on gambling, or is it classic gambling disorder? that came out, or the Irish Examiner is saying came out, but to me it looks like the report came out in April, so either the report has been amended or publicly released, or the Irish Examiner is reporting on a month's old paper as breaking news. Either is perfectly possible, frankly. Absolutely. But before that, Michael, I wanted to, just, a, you know, a nice fun story? Yes. Uh, an moose boost of a story. Hmm. China is a deeply traditional land, Michael. It's got a rich and storied history, fascinating history. Yes. Many, many years. But they've recently returned to tradition, but an American tradition in a a way I found very, very amusing. So a new report has come out from the uh, Center for Global Policy, which is a think tank over in Washington. And it's on um, the forced labor that we're seeing in China primarily using uh, members of the Uyghur population, but also being drawn from other ethnic populations uh, at large. Yes. And in a a good, solid callback to American tradition, it turns out that the Chinese government have, allegedly, put about 570,000 of these people picking cotton. Okay.
1: So uh, are they doing this beside Old Man River?
0: You know, I don't know if... Chinese Uyghurs have developed a series of jaunty slave songs yet, or if that will come in time, assuming they have time.
1: I'm not familiar with uh, popular Chinese or folk music. I did have to go to Chinese opera once, and it was the second longest night of my life, only beaten narrowly by the first time I was made to go to the ballet. It was an offence against human rights, actually, I think it was. The kind of thing they probably do in Guantanamo Bay. So I don't think jaunty is not is not, is not the word that I first associate with Chinese classical music anyway.
0: So the, uh, the Anti-Slavery International has come out and said that the report is going to be discussed in both the EU and British Parliaments next week. Now, the British Parliament particularly has started to kind of bring the hammer down on China, relatively speaking, in diplomatic speech. I um, didn't even bother to ask the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs or Simon Coveney's office what they thought of this. Pretty much just give me the same answer any time I ask them anything about China. And at this point, I'm wasting both my own time and their time having to cut and paste it. Wasting the government's time is never a bad thing. It is much like distracting a bear from
1: eating your child. The less the government does, the better it is for everyone.
0: Anyway, so the, the cotton produced by these people is going to go into the global supply so it's highly likely that if this report is correct and given china's general behavior towards the uyghur population it would be hard to see why they'd stop at this then it's highly likely a number of irish fashion brands are also tainted by slave labor uh, but i i love i loved michael the response of the chinese foreign ministry so one of their spokespeople talked to writers about it and they're what they said was this, Michael. Yeah? Helping people of all ethnic groups secure stable employment is entirely different from slave labour.
1: Well, Gary, he has a point. I mean, it's you have to say that's undeniably true.
0: It's one of those wonderful signs where you think of and go, what do you mean by helping? Do you mean helping as enforcing?"
1: Well, you know, I came across reports of elderly... House church leaders of house churches in southern China, you know, that sort were of evangelical Christians. Many of whom, Gary, I suspected were not working, but may now have been helped to go on to a second or third generation in their career picking cotton. It gets you out in the open air. We all know exercise is good for elderly people. Sunshine, vitamin D, very good for bone density and for bone health generally. You know, we shouldn't always. Gary, I don't like to say this, but you have a bit of a thing against the Chinese. And I don't think I'm the only one that's noticed it. Okay, technically, technically speaking, what's happening against the Uyghurs may be a genocide. But, you know, there's more to China than a genocide. And it just seems to me every time we talk genocide, sorry, every time we talk China, we end up talking about the genocide. You know, I think that's that's a very narrow way of looking at China. and a country, a huge country with an incredibly rich and ancient culture. I don't like to say that, Gary, but, you know, I think it has to be said. Balance and truth is what this podcast
0: is about. Did you see the, on a totally unrelated note, Michael, did you see the uh, Danish, um, in Denmark, one of the the VP of communications at Huawei was asked to explain the... Um, so Huawei have developed facial recognition technology that can now trigger what are called Uyghur alarms.
1: You see, you're characterizing them as Uyghur alarms, whereas that's not what Huawei calls them.
0: No, I, I imagine there is a technical term, something along the lines of facial recognition software for recognition of members of the indigenous Uyghur community. And, you know, it's very... It's it's not immoral, it's amoral. It's just a thing. It's a, it's a bit like a Google alert. Interestingly, I did see a technical report on it that said... Some of the companies that have this technology now include those involved in the distribution of um, videos inside China because YouTube is banned. And that the technology means that if a video or audio file is uploaded, yeah, they can detect that there are Uyghur features in it and automatically have the uh, video brought down. Which, let's say, Michael, that you were genociding a people and wanted to cut, let's say, their ability to communicate with the outside world. yeah. That seems like the sort of technology that you know a malicious person could make use of.
1: It's an interesting technology, though, isn't it? The idea that you could take facial recognition f- uh, to the extent from a p- from a population which has a which is distinct but not utterly dissimilar from the larger population. And if you had an if you had enough, I think imagine the the database must be based on a, obviously a very large sample. So, for example, in Ireland, if you got any ethnic group in Ireland. And you put in a large enough database. You'd be able to do an automatic recognition system. So if somebody came into your shop or your business or your house from any different ethnic group, you could immediately identify them. And you could respond to them commercially in the most culturally appropriate way. I think this is, could be really interesting.
0: But anyway, a journalist asked their VP of communications to explain this. And, you know, what was happening with it and why it existed, basically. And the response he got was... I can't explain it, which is why I've just resigned.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you get you get oddballs, you know, in any kind of business. Any kind. You're going to get these people, Gary. Sc- 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 Scandinavians.
0: The documents that leaked that showed the Chinese had these capabilities, uh, Huawei had... They, these were internal Huawei documents that leaked, showed that they w- were working on this system in 2018. And... Um, <laughs> Huawei then responded, of course, by coming out and uh, saying that we we absolutely do not condone the use of our technology to discriminate against members of any community.
1: Do you know, <clears throat> I don't want to be small minded or petty here, Gary, because it's not my nature. But if they're doing this in 2018, would they not have been better sometime in 2018 developing a technology
0: which recognised people being infected by novel versions of a
1: virus that had jumped species?
0: I I have I have said that I think China is on a sort of... The, the closest historical reference point is Nazi Germany prior to the extermination camps. But after they've started to move in... And I think if it was like, you know, 1934, Michael, and a German company had come out and said that they had developed, say, facial recognition software that could identify Jews in public places, mm. I think the appropriate response would have just been a sort of, and... Um, what do you plan to do with that? Yeah, just like not saying you're gonna do anything, but like, is
1: this just
0: one? Of, is just what is this just one of those academic
1: things that people do just to see if they could do it, or is there maybe a plan? Because that there was a book, you know, that book that you're the guy that's you know the boss guy. He wrote that book in the twenties, and he did seem to have. Uh, I'm not saying you know, but I'm just You, you have to ask. Was there a a consequence, a plan attached to this? Yeah, I could see that. I could see that you could be in that position. Germany sometime around the time of the enabling laws.
0: But uh, anyway, so he cannot discuss it because he remains under contract to Huawei until February. Uh, Huawei went on the offensive and said he was just a a low-level PR manager, which then meant people went back through Huawei press releases and went, no, he was your VP of communication, very clearly. You, you can't just memory hold that. We're right here.
1: Well, you know, maybe in Huawei VP of communication is a low-level PR person.
0: Yeah, No, I don't think they're like the Americans where everyone is a VP.
1: Everyone's a VP, but not everyone is a partner. That's one of the great lessons of American life.
0: Good times. Good times. I think Huawei's argument now is that they just tested it. They didn't, uh, you know, they never went to market with it. But now it looks like other Chinese companies have it. And if Huawei didn't go to market with it, where would... Did those other Chinese companies get it or was this, you know, just spontaneous evolution?
1: My, my favorite comment with, about the, the cotton thing, what, you know, the, the extent to which the cotton, how they say, the cotton pool of world fashion might be affected because China produces a very large amount of cotton at the height, the, the quality and the ultimate destination this, I do not know. I know Egyptian cotton historically was considered to be the thing. Maybe Chinese cotton is a big part of fashion, whatever. But this was mentioned to somebody, and the cotton response was that that meant that your know, conscience, on reflection, they would have to no more use, uh, say, for example, cotton undergarments. They would move to silk. And it was pointed out that, you know, actually, China makes silk as well. And the response was China makes silk, really? God, is there
0: anything they don't? I mean they've been at the whole silk thing for a while now. For a
1: while now, yeah. Even before the Italians in Como I thought I just I, just, I thought it was precious. China, China makes silk really. I think it's wonderful that these people are out there, Gary. I think it's fantastic. I don't know, maybe you know
0: this might be good for the uh, for the Chinese cotton industry. It's like you know, people say diamonds and diamonds are just pretty rocks. There's nothing special about them. But a blood diamond, Michael. That shows how dedicated you are to your partner. If you're willing to trade the lives of a small African village to demonstrate your love, that's a commitment.
1: Absolutely. I I don't understand why there aren't jewellers out there marketing heavily a line of engagement rings, blood diamonds, to show you really care.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In the same way, if you're not willing to purchase cotton produced by slave labour, are you really wearing the highest quality cotton? I mean, you want cotton that literal blood, sweat, and tears has gone into, and with slavery that's never been as likely to happen.
1: Yeah, but well washed. Oh, obviously, yeah. Yeah, can you do That's me? what
0: you get the children to do, Mike.
1: Blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, it's not what you want in your...
0: Yeah, no, they, no. You do that with the adults, and then you get the children into the field, and their small hands are useful for cleaning.
1: I'm sorry, all I can hear myself in my head, in my little head, all I can hear is Paul Robeson singing. He don't, he don't plant taters. He don't tote cotton, and I, I don't. It's going to be with me for the
0: rest of the day now.
1: Anyway, can we, can we abandon the Uyghurs? I'm sure they'll be back next week with your... Yes,
0: let, let us follow the example of the Irish government and abandon the Uyghurs.
1: Gary, just remember the words of the Irish government, or specifically the local government in Cork. Different cultures have different practices and ways of looking at things.
0: Yes, and let me, let me parse the underlying statement between all governmental discussion on this area. We make a lot of money from China... And they are temperamental.
1: I Yeah, you see, they are temperamental maybe is the key. It's not just the money. Because let's face it, we make a hell of a lot of money from the United States and from you know, companies which uh, have their origin and their head in the United States. But that did not stop Irish politicians constantly wittering on about what an awful person Donald Trump was. Far more so than you ever hear people talking about Xi, Ling, am I... Jilin
0: is that the name? The present chairman of the party? That's the thing. You can say what you want about the Americans because one, they don't really care and two, if they do care, they're not unified enough to do anything. You'll always have politicians who support you. The Chinese have realised that it's not really the size of your economy. It's your willingness to punish people who go against what you want that gives you power.
1: Many years ago, there was a wonderful book written on the psychology of the success of uh, the mafia and other forms of organized violence," he said. "The success of the mafia was not actually underpinned by their use of violence, or by their size or their capacity to organize genuine, wide-scale wars or violence, but rather the understanding of their willingness to use violence to an extreme level in each individual situation. That the person that was dealing the one knew that, unlike all the other people, this guy would happily break your legs. And that's the thing with China." You know, it doesn't matter. You might, Although there, these days the economy is very, very big indeed. But even if it wasn't, there, you, you know what China... It will break your legs. And it won't care. As Australia is now discovering. Uh, as all over the internet we have people... Yes, which also, is
0: why we hope our listeners have been getting drunk on Australian wine. And plan to do so into the future.
1: Well, getting drunk in a moderate and safe and healthy way. Or not. Oh no, we wouldn't want to encourage non... Unsafe drinking habits, Kerry.
0: Well, you know what you like to say, Michael. It's important to stand up and fall down for your principles.
1: Yes, and when the only thing you have to do is fall down, how you fall down is important. I think that's from The Lion in Winter, or something like it. Anyway.
0: So, this, because this is probably not going to take long, because I really have no idea what's happening with this. The Irish Examiner is reporting that the College of Psychiatrists of Ireland has called for an urgent ban on all gambling on sports. Yes. From next year.
1: Well, I don't know if I read the same Is this the one that says sports gambling or gambling on sports?
0: It says sports gambling.
1: Now, I know that this might sound like a stupid decision. I genuinely don't mean it to be. It's that my understanding, sports gambling would ref, it refers historically or culturally in Ireland to differentiate it from, say, gambling on horse racing. Which is not, I know, which is a sport. Now, that may not be their understanding or their intention, but sports gambling would tend to be. In Ireland, you tend to have gambling, which was on horses and dogs to an extent, on the, but that's more on track. And then all the other stuff football, snooker, darts, golf, whatever. I, I,
0: I don't know. I, I've heard of sports betting, but now sports gambling.
1: Well, it may be that the Irish College of Psychiatrists is not fluent. In the language of sport and gambling.
0: Later in the article, it says ban on gambling in sports. But
1: again, I think that's a, that's a language problem. Gambling in sports, is generally speaking, is actually already either illegal or banned within the sports. If you're in the sport, you're not supposed to gamble very often. Yeah, so I
0: think it's gambling on sports, and we'll take the third option that isn't in the article at all.
1: Right, okay.
0: Uh, although I do like the idea of sports gambling, that there is a competitive gambling element there. Hmm. <laughs> Gambling not to win money, but as a sport. Yeah. An inversion of the standard procedure on these things. Televised gambling. I hope there's no money on it either. So basically, College of Psychiatrists saying, hidden academic, coronavirus has made it much worse. I can't find this report though. Uh, and when you go on to the, the College of Psychiatrists, there is a report on gambling that came out, but it came out in April of 2020. But the conclusions are broadly the same as what the Irish Examiner is reporting. So either they have just released the paper and it was embargoed and maybe the Irish Examiner jumped it a bit or maybe nowhere else was interested, or the Irish Examiner saw the paper, assumed it was recent, and are now discussing as if it was immediately relevant something from April 2020.
1: Did the paper advocate for the banning of sports gambling or the ad- banning of advertising
0: of sports gambling? Well, the paper said gambling should be stopped uh, in sporting. <laughs> that means gambling, really, must should be stopped. I,
1: I mean, the word gaming and gambling are actually literally are literally synonymous.
0: So, what the what the report says? And there's a number of recommendations. It says that gambling advertisements on television and radio shouldn't be aired before the watershed. Um, billboards and public transport shouldn't be allowed and gambling advertisement within sports should not be permitted then they want an independent regulator of gambling advertisements management of uh, gambling products so they can't be targeted towards children it's it's quite a long list but there was um there was one line which i thought was particularly interesting michael because the report talks about you know how this is a, a terrible scourge And it's getting more serious, and that's why we need to make these changes. Yes. However, it also has this line in it, Michael. Regrettably, there are no national data reflecting the prevalence of gambling disorder in Ireland.
1: So, we don't actually know if it is a problem, or if it is a problem. We don't know the extent to which it is a problem. We don't know for whom it is a problem. We don't know what ages, if there is an age differential for the problem, or if there's a geographic or a socioeconomic variance in the problem. If there is no data, we know nothing.
0: Yeah, so I congratulate the Irish College of Psychiatry on writing a 13-page report and getting in a page 4 that there's no national data on the thing they're writing about.
1: No, this not be glib. I should imagine what they would respond is, there may not be national data, but there, there may well be sig- significant and useful amounts of data available, say, from the United Kingdom, and they're working on the basis that the, the outcomes of the United Kingdom, which is a similar market and a similar gambling laws and opportunities, might not be dissimilar to here.
0: Or perhaps they could say that there is re- no national research, but there is research on the gambling disorder in Ireland more generally, or looking at specific areas. Unfortunately, the report also says, and I quote, there is little research on gambling disorder in Ireland.
1: Again, in Ireland.
0: Yeah, you know, Michael. As someone who has to deal with the vaping issue and constantly gets the "Yes, but your research isn't Irish; it's British or European," I think we should hold everyone to that standard that I am held to. Uh, well, yeah, I, I am
1: sympathetic. Uh, we have—you are not alone in being held to that standard. We have—I have been myself. It is a reasonable thing to say, but there you go. The pe- other people are not as reasonable as we are.
0: So it looks like they are, anyway presumably, calling for a ban on uh, sports-related gambling, which will be fascinating because if that happens and it relates to horse racing, dog racing, harness racing, uh, they're gone. They're just dead. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah, they're just... That's not coming back. Um, Then when we move on to football... Less so but a lot of the interest is sustained by gambling and gambling actually tends to
1: By the way, I mean it's worth pointing out here that you can you can do you could you could introduce this legislation in such a way as would kill off horse racing and dog racing in Ireland as sports and and, and, and there may be plenty of people out there who don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. However, there's absolutely no way that you could do this in such a way that would stop people betting on horse racing or here or anywhere else because the vast majority of sports gambling that you're talking about it do- doesn't occur in bookie shops it, ter- it occurs online and unless you're going to start to come in and say that we're going to shut down websites or you're going to put on you're going to put some kind of block on web on, on people in Ireland accessing websites which are based in Gibraltar or the UK this would have absolutely no impact. This would have no impact at all on people's ability to gamble online.
0: No, I mean, I reading the Examiner piece, I think it is entirely possible that they are. Yes, the report may have changed, but it's also possible that they've just misread the report. Because when you look at the quotes they have in it, all of the quotes relate to advertisement. All of the quotes calling for any sort of limit are about advertisement, not about the actual gambling itself now if they are calling for a ban of gambling on sports that is quite a dramatic step for the industry and uh, not what we seem be terribly effective in other places i mean i don't think i've ever gambled on a sport actually
1: oh well i have i worked I worked with a bookie for 3 years as on course Penciler, and i gambled a, a regularly and a lot. were you good at it i was well, that's not fair. I was good at it. I was successful at it because I was very fortunate that I had access to very high quality information, which meant that it was much easier for me to. Well, I, I was also good at it insofar as I understood uh, better at the end of it how, how the, the easiest ways to lose money. And there are lots of very good ways of losing money. And people say the bookie always wins, the bookie does not. There are many, many men in Ireland who have bookies licenses that don't work as bookies. Men who started off with large fortunes and ended up with no fortunes at all because they got it wrong. But there are ways, there are basic things, basic mistakes that people make with, with gambling, yeah.
0: We should do more work on gambling. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh,
1: it's it's great fun. And I tell you, not that I encourage this at all because it's a re- I mean, you really, if you, I was, as I say, I was in any other business, it would be insider information, you know, but there is something about winning a large sum of money, which takes place in the space of two minutes. There is an, inten- <laughs> there is an intensity to it, which is fantastic. Now there's also an intensity to losing a large sum of money in two minutes, which is not quite so pleasant.
0: But does that make winning it back even better if you win it back?
1: Well, of course, you see, you're, you're I don't know if you're actually did, but you're kind of adverting to the real problem that many, many people end up with gambling is that they start chasing money. The worst, uh, Norm, uh, Peter, Norm Peterson, no, not Norm Peterson, but yours, Norm MacDonald, the comedian uh, much beloved by thee and me, was and
0: a, a degenerate gambler.
1: That's a degenerate gambler. Um, he went, he went uh, bankrupt, I think, if not actually, damn near bankrupt, twice. Through gambling, and he he, he I remember him talking about this once. And he said it was a what he said. Something it was very true. He said he was, he's reading a book about uh or talking to a friend of his who was a gambler who said who liked to gamble. He said he but he was very lucky. He'd never actually won money, and that's the terrible thing. If you ever if you have, particularly at the beginning of your life as a gambler, you win money and you don't understand that it, genuinely this is a on a roulette table or whatever it is a fluke of luck. You forever afterwards you're seeking that high, and the problem is that what most people do is they start to chase their money. Uh, when they lose money, they develop all sorts of strategies and superstitions about oh, well, if I do this and I double up, and I, 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 I and it just gets worse and worse and worse because the more you chase it, the more on out of control you are, and the more irrational you become. And as the 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 report mentions there isn't that much reporting on much data on gambling in Ireland. But to the extent that some has been done, I mean, there are, we have reason to believe that there are probably more people who are problem gamblers in the country than there are problem drinkers. And it does have a savage effect on people's family lives and personal lives if you're a problem Mm -hmm. gambler. And if the problem is, weirdly, if most of these guys, it's not backing horses or football games, things like um, one armed bandits, slot machines, certain kinds of online gaming, because they have worked out. You will understand this better than I, but they have worked out the relationship between the the psychology of the ritual, the noises, the lights, the process, and how it works on your. Is it
0: dopamine system? Is it the dopamine system we're talking about? Yeah, they're very good at the um at the way they deliver losses versus um versus wins. Yeah, and they're all very attractive and just psychologically, cumulative small losses are heavily offset when you have single large payouts because the the single feeling it evokes is so much stronger. But over the long run, you'll lose incredible amounts of money. But you'll feel like you're winning a lot of money.
1: And that's the thing. I mean, it's the same as anybody who's ever played golf. You come off a golf course and you've played 107 shots, but you remember the three good shots you played. You, you, When you gamble, like you're, if you're a problem, you come off. You don't remember all the money, but you remember the time you won that big jackpot, the feeling you got from it.
0: Well, actually, I mean, slots are incredibly lucrative for uh, anywhere that uh, specializes in gambling because slots... The old ones were mechanical, but the new ones are digital. And you basically, you can set an exact win percentage on them. Yeah, So you can, with mathematical certainty, as long as they're set up correctly know that you will make money on slots as long as you have people who use them.
1: And they've also set them up in such a way that they we know that a lot of the time addiction and compulsion is connected to ritual and to practice and you know and they, 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 they really work with that they, as I said the, the dopamine system you know, as I don't understand, but they, they're very good at it. it I don't think it's a bad thing. I, for lots of reasons, even though I'm it might be offensive to my libertarian side. That in comparison to England, where every pub and every uh, every bookie has slot machines, that we've never we haven't gone down that way in Ireland. I think I don't like them in pubs, just it's an aesthetic thing as much as anything else. And that's really where a lot of bookmakers, particularly small independent bookmakers in England, to the extent that they still exist, they, they a lot of their money, their profit comes from they don't call them bad slot machines anymore, they call them single
0: Player terminals or something? I don't know. I haven't really kept up with the lingo of... um,
1: But something like that anyway. But they're very profitable and very addictive.
0: They are, and you can do quite a lot with them because of how finely they can be tuned. So for instance, you can create a situation where if someone wants to play at the higher value slot machines, they have to go further into the building. And then you put the lower payout slot machines or the machines that have particularly high uh, payout rates by the exits, ah. which means that as someone goes, fuck it, I'm done, I'm leaving, as they get closer and closer to the exit, the chance of them walking by someone winning increases. And all you need is someone to go, fuck it, no, 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 he's just one big. If, if I stick around, I'll win big mm. and go back in.
1: And that's one of the things I know from back when I was, a, you know, I was a teenager, one of the things we used to do in the summer, we used to play on the poker machines. Now, you, these were obviously based on a a computer program, they had a certain amount of predictability about them when it came to high-low cards or certain things you just knew you could win on, you always won on certain cards you knew you always lost on after that. I'm sure it was based on percentages. But it always struck me that, and I wasn't immune from this, you know the way human beings are, we are pattern-creating animals. We like to impose patterns on the world when we see something happening. Even if it turns out that this is it's a projection of our desire rather than a real pattern itself when you 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 look at somebody playing say a poker machine or look at someone playing a slot everybody had their own particular theory oh now you see what that's done that every time you get three queens and they within four hands you get a full house and then you get a flush that will always be within five hands you'll get a poker or something. This machine will always pay out after a certain amount of time and this will be perfect. You you impose the pattern. You you try and create a sense of predictability about the thing. Now, most of the time it's pure fiction but it's very good for the the guy who has the machine because it gives you more reasons to keep playing the machine.
0: Well, there have been a couple of cases of people being absolutely cleared out because people were, were actually able to determine the patterns installed in the machines. And I think before, when they were mechanical, that was a lot easier to do because they couldn't be as complex.
1: The variation was much more limited.
0: Yeah, you can you can program in a degree of randomness quite easily now. But I, I actually don't know that much about the technology of them, but I did do a little bit of work on them, in actually in relation to addiction psychology, because they are, as a tool... To indulge addictions and to encourage the development of addictive behaviour, they are fantastically well designed.
1: They're as close as you get. My understanding is like, is like they are this the human equivalent of you know those rat mazes where they give rats cocaine at the end of it. Yeah, it, it's a similar kind of uh, dopamine stimulating buzz. They're very very well designed. Like so 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 well designed as i say the libertarian bit of me just look at them and go even though jeez mm, i don't like that i just it it looks like the cards have been stacked so carefully in this case that the person the capacity of an individual to be make to actually consciously make rational you know mm, I'm being a fuzzy liberal there, maybe, but there's something really kind of underhand about it, almost. I
0: mean, I, I, I gambling falls into like particularly stuff like slot machines on the side of gambling because stuff like horse racing, I think, is in a like, and poker for to a large extent is in a different category in that there is skill involved in them. Like horse racing, if you know about horses, kind of helpful.
1: Yes. Um. Yeah. I mean, if I, if you're if you're a gambler, I would say if you're a bookmaker. To an extent, you 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 want somebody who knows about the form in order to set the initial odds, and after that, you just you should make your book and leverage, leverage incorrect pricing. I think, fundamentally, I think in bookmaking it's actually leveraging it's spotting incorrectly priced horses rather than knowing the horses itself. But in like poker, for example, I think if you if you look at poker, say you're a bridge player, right? One of the things about contract bridge, if you play it, is that. Everybody in a night plays exactly the same set of hands, right? You go to a table, you play two, you play two hands of bridge. Those hands are returned, and into the book, and you put the score that you make on it. You don't know the score that anybody makes until you finish the hands and you write your score onto the thing. At The end of the night, you've paid, you've played forty hands, fifty hands, sixty hands of bridge. All the hands are scored, and the, per, the, the couple that on average did the best over all the sixty hands wins. So, in a sense. It's the game which approaches the highest level, if you like, of skill fairness. And people look at poker and say, well, you know, it, it's not so. The truth is, actually, poker, just as much as anything, in the long run, is, is all about skill. It's not just about the skill. It's But skill, also, in the way that you... Money is just as much a part of poker. The gambling is just as so much a part of poker as the cards are. And how you gamble, and how you time it, and the size of the, the, your your wagers and stuff, but it is skill, and it's about reading your opponents. Because over a thousand hands of poker, or two thousand hands of poker, everybody will end up with pretty well the same quality of hands. But some people just keep winning, and some people keep losing, and that's just because some people are very good at poker.
0: Yeah, I, I think the, I think this idea that poker is a game of chance. If you have ever watched, um if you've just ever gone to a casino and watched a poker table for a long period of time, whether you're playing or not, and the rate at which some people win and the rate at which some people lose is simply not possible to maintain through pure chance.
1: Yeah, and then, just blindly, you've got people, if you look at the tour in the United States, there are people who have been on the, being professional poker players for 40 years, and they have won the poker year in, year out for 40 years. That's not luck. That's because they're very good at poker. Uh, the cards will will even themselves. Over a couple of hours, it's perfectly possible that over a couple of hours of poker, you could just get hand after hand after hand. You can just fill your house and hit, fill the run every time. And you could be up against a genius and he just... But if you play long enough, the tide will turn. That's why you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold him.
0: All right, as, I, as I was saying, gambling for me particularly stuff like slots, falls into that area of stuff I don't like in particular that I have no interest in personally, but which I don't think should be banned and would prefer to see either continue as it is or be regulated in some reasonable sense that allows them to still operate. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a probably not, I mean, it's not something that's going to come to you, news as you, Michael, or to listeners of the show, but there is this assumption when you talk about stuff like this because we talked about, I think slot machines quite negatively there. Yes. If you don't like things, they must be banned, and if you do like them, they must be legal. Yes, that's
1: that's un, it's an unfortunate manifestation of the one the, the the hallmarks of the life we live these days is this. I find it distressing is the speed at which people will go from the statement "I do not like" to "We should ban." That, the, the the gap between those two statements is getting smaller and smaller all the time and then we need to slow that down because it's not just what to you or I might be obviously not a good idea it's going to that's going to cover a hell of a lot of our lives eventually if we allow it to go all the way because if we're just looking at talking about addictive substances I mean caffeine is addictive and that's not disputed caffeine is addictive So should we control that? Alcohol is certainly addictive, and we already see the consequences of, well, it's addictive to some people. It is not in and of itself an addictive substance, it seems to me. It would be wrong to characterise it like that, even though some people do, because there are people who drink alcohol for 70 years and never become addicted. But it can have negative outcomes, and therefore we have groups of people who spend their lives lobbying that people's access to alcohol should be restricted more and more and more, and I
0: don't like that. No, I mean there is this this common thing of well, it can have negative consequences, and therefore it should be banned in its entirety. You sort of going, the potential of negative consequences is not in and of itself sufficient reason to ban anything.
1: I think the potential to live a life which is utterly devoid of anything fun or joyful is such a large and such a dangerous prospect that we should seriously consider banning people who are engaged in the process of making life absent of joy and fun. We should look at legislation. The Killjoy Bill, Gary, what about it? All Killjoys sent on, will be sent to live in the Aran Islands.
0: i to send them to Australia. It work the first time.
1: Is that fair in Australia when they're having all this problem with China? Send them to China? Send them to China. Confucius, I think, would approve of their strict morality.
0: Yes. Yes, I think they'd have a uh, they could pick wonderful cotton. background. They could pick cotton. They could pick up the study of um, Carl Schmidt. You know, there's many opportunities in China right now.
1: Absolutely. So we've sorted that one out anyway. That's a good thing.
0: For the for the main event, as it were, the report, the Department of Justice report on hate speech and hate crime in Ireland. yes. Report on the Public Consultation 2020, as it is titled, Michael. Yes. The EBI submitted, I think, quite a substantial piece of work on this. And it's not a book, but we got, you know, we got a professor of law. We got a professor emeritus of philosophy. We got them together, got them to explain the issues with hate speech law, hate crime law, the dangers that were there. We put that in, we went and we met with the Department of uh, Justice, we met with some very high-ranking civil servants, surprisingly high-ranking actually. We were there for, I think, about four hours, the three of us, uh, the, the the two professors and myself, explaining why this was an issue. Um
1: Yeah, well, I was left waiting for you,
0: Lili Weinberg. Oh, I'm sure that was a terrible, terrible plight for you, Michael. I
1: drank a very, very... It was very pleasant Riesling, but I would have liked to have been there, but I wasn't let in, because only three people could go. Anyway, no, it was a very fine piece of work, Gary, actually, and you should be complimented on the work that you put in to organise it. We got uh, Dr Hanlon from UCC, who did a very fine piece, and Gerard, who did a wonderful piece of... uh, It's available online, I think, isn't it?
0: It is. I'll I'll put a link to it. It it only... We hadn't put it up publicly because we gave it, while it was a public consultation, we gave it to the department and we talked about it, so we thought we wouldn't uh, publicise it at the time. However, the report, as it came out uh, yesterday, was, um, I think, deeply disappointing would be the phrase I would use for it, and so I I have now put it online, it's on the EBI's website. I'll include a link to it in the bottom of this podcast, and um, you can have a look at it if you want.
1: I think it was a very, very good piece of work. And I tell you, this, it's not, it's a proper EBI piece of research. In that it's, I think it, it is a nicely Burkean, conservative approach to it. It's not a hardline uh, libertarian, although i certainly Jared, I think, would be more libertarian. A Burkean libertarian, but I think it's a really nuanced, nice piece of work, and I think anybody who has a chance should read it because I think it's we, I'm quite quite proud of that.
0: There was a, a moment. Obviously, I can't I can't go through what was discussed with the department because that would have been said in in confidence. But there was one moment where one of the department officials said, uh, "No, obviously, no one here thinks there should be no restrictions on speech," and I think <laughs> this just me and Connor slowly looking toward Jared Casey, the libertarian philosopher. <laughs> Jared, no, this is not the crowd. But no, Jared, Jared uh, did not. I think he made a bit of a noise, but he didn't uh, didn't launch into it. And instead, he was actually he was actually was very solid, as was uh, Connor on the uh,
1: the Good legal guy. side
0: of things. And uh, basically, none of that got into the report. And uh, it is um, it's frankly a bit of a shit show from <laughs> from our perspective. It is, it talks a lot about the need to safeguard human, uh, free expression and the right to, to free speech. Mm-hmm. The problem comes is when you go into it and you start looking at what's recommended and they make recommendations as to the form of the legislation and, and how it should be put together and how to increase the uh, prosecution rate of this new legislation. Mm-hmm. But they don't, Michael, give a single recommendation as to how free speech can be safeguarded, now I attended the technical briefing uh, on this that was uh, held before the launch, as, as because the EBI had made a submission. Yes. Again, I'm not sure how much I can say about that meeting. They didn't say it was under any particular ruling, but I would keep as much of it in confidence as as possible. But I, I did ask them. Um, you know, do you have any countries? Do you have any frameworks? Do you have any examples? Because you have researched this thoroughly that you can point to and say this is what we should look at to protect the, to ensure there is the greatest amount of protection for freedom of expression in this country when we bring in the rather extensive and expansive hate speech and hate crime laws that they want to bring in. And the answer I got was that it it was, we were purely in the conceptual stage And they didn't say, no, they didn't have that information, but there's none of that information in the report. Yeah. I I would also make this just general observation. Most of the major human rights NGOs in the country were in this meeting, and a number of them asked questions. The only group in this meeting that asked any question related to freedom of expression or free speech or safeguards or legal limitations or anything like that was the EBI. Not a single one of, and I won't name them because, again, I'm not sure as to how much. I, I would just like to keep these kind of things in as much confidence as possible. But none of the none of the best and brightest of the rights based NGOs had a single comment or question on freedom of speech, free expression, anything about it. They only seemed interested in yeah. How many people can we prosecute under this? How easy will it be to prosecute under this?
1: Which, you know, let's not put a tooth in it. It's kind of indicative on how seriously they are committed to the notion of genuine, radical, proper free speech in our society and the extent to which they're committed to the idea of controlling it.
0: It's not even... I mean, we talk about radical free speech there, Michael. You mentioned it there.
1: And well, sorry, just to, I, I don't. What what I mean actually, I should be clear is not so much radical free speech, but a radical commitment to free speech.
0: Um, there is that there are some provisions in this that I just don't think they can implement in in the way they're talking about, and in any way protect a freedom of expression. There is another interesting point. They they list 10 points in it. Yeah. And one of the things they say is that the new legislation should contain robust safeguards for freedom of expression, such as protection for reasonable and genuine contributions to literary, artistic, political, scientific, or academic discourse and fair and accurate reporting. And I pointed out to them that they've omitted or forgotten um, public discourse. Kind of important. Public discourse is immensely important. And as they said that they had, went, oh, did we? Well, we mentioned it earlier. And, you know, some would say that all public discourse is political. I'm like, I wouldn't. I would, in fact, be strongly of the opinion that it's not and that it shouldn't be.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what, to the extent that conservatism has positions, one of the
0: positions is that not all discourse, not all activity is, in fact, political. I mean, let's take, if we take the transgender uh, issue, If we have a discussion about what the law should be regarding gender recognition, that is a political discussion. Yes. Because law is political. If we have a discussion regarding if one can actually change, if if gender should be understood in the way it is currently understood under the Gender Recognition Act, it relates to a law. But it's not an actual political question. It's a question of, the truth of the matter and the cultural context of it.
1: it it's that's in a sense almost a more philosophical or it is. anthropological. I mean, if we want to, in a sense, more concrete, if if we're having the same discussion, and we wanted to have a discussion about whether or not the use of cross hormones uh, in prepubescent uh, children could have tech could have negative long term effects. That isn't a political discussion. Or at least it shouldn't be seen as a political discussion.
0: Now, on that, an interesting point is that they recommend the inclusion of gender, gender identity, and gender expression under any hate crime legislation that comes forward. But they do not recommend the inclusion of sex characteristics. Yes, sex. Now, that is going to be particularly interesting to, I think, some of the LGB and feminist groups who are going to, uh, I'd say, not be happy. You know that.
1: I want to speak just a little bit. I know it might be tedious to others, but I want to say this might sound abstruse and it might sound tinny, but one of the re- there is a specific cultural moment here that we're going through, and this is a this is an actual issue. It, and it, I know some listeners, others may not, but others may find this bizarre. But on. What would have been the fringes, but is increasingly less and less the fringes of the debate about gender, is the belief that we we, we should no longer talk about sex and sex characteristics as being what what's the phrase when we talk? Uh, you talk about you used to be when you talked about sex and you talked about race and things that these were fixed or permanent characteristics, things that your attributes you couldn't change. So, for example, homosexuality was used to in the discussion. People used to talk about same-sex attracted people, that gay men and gay women were same-sex attracted. And that's the language which has historically been used within the the gay community. We now have a movement which is saying that is not actually what happens. We are not same-sex attracted, or if you're heterosexual, you are not other-sex attracted. We are gender. We are attracted by gender, not by sex. And that to think of being same-sex attracted is actually a form of transphobia and is a, is a form of... Bizarrely, I have seen this said a number of times, it's based on incorrect information, Gary. I don't... I, Honest to God, don't... You... When you look at your fiance, to whom I imagine you are attracted, if you think you're, you're attracted to her because, amongst other things, she is a woman... That is her, ge- her, her, her biological sex. You are, in fact, working on incorrect information. You're attracted to her gender.
0: Unfortunately, I'm slightly too aware of research on, uh, on the actual science of attraction and the physiological components of it, and not just the obvious physiological components, but things like the composition of sweat, even. To pick a really trivial example that is actually... You can, uh, you can show impact on attractiveness... Right, yes. From to sort of go, well, it's all just gender. But no, I, I think that's that is a deliberate omission very clearly, and I, I know that because that was asked. And uh, yes, it is, it is a deliberate omission for whatever reason. But just to give an idea of a, a provision, Michael, that I think could be problematic, and there's a yeah. number of these. There is this provision on page 44 of the report. There should be no requirement for the material. This is in relation to sharing material that is uh, hateful, that is deemed to be worthy of criminal conviction. Yes. There should be no requirement for the material to be threatening, abusive, or insulting in itself. This is a change from the 1989 Act, which always required the material itself to be threatening, abusive, or insulting in nature. Yes. So a broadcast or speech, which is clearly designed to incite hatred, but is couched in polite or coded language, would be covered by the new offence. Wow. Now that to me... So you have language... That a court will have to decide, even accepting that it wasn't threatening, abusive, or insulting, was designed to incite hatred. That is just... Now, they also have gotten rid... They recommend the removal of the requirement to show that you intended to incite hatred. And they've now added the uh, ability to show that you were reckless. So you oh. should have known...
1: Yeah, which, and that actually, what that is about, that is speaking to what we talked about before. When we, the bill that was introduced by um, a few weeks ago on this subject, which, you know remember that dog's vomit of a bill, it was all over the place.
0: Oh, yeah, that was, yeah.
1: But remember when the thing, that the central points of it was that it didn't have to be objectively anything, hateful or hated, but the important thing was that somebody experienced it subjectively as being, Hateful.
0: Now the thing here is that recklessness in law at least has a defined meaning, whereas the bill that was put forward by the Finaval senators was total horseshit. It was just, and I tried to be kind when I was writing that article about it, um, but it was, it was it is the worst written bill I've ever seen debated before the Senate.
1: Reckless, reckless does me in law. The problem is reckless as to what. See, it would be recklessness has, has, an under, has a, a, a fairly fixed understanding in the law court, will have a sense of what recklessness is. But what that doesn't deal with is <coughs> the other side of the equation. I might be perfectly willing to understand that somebody out there might find this or might consider this to be hateful. But is that the standard by which we should be, we should be measuring the right to speak? Because doesn't that mean that at that point, my speech is going to be governed by the most hysterical, most hypersensitive, most bad faith living person who is in my
0: potential audience? But the thing there is that the department says that's not what they want to happen. That's not what they want to happen. Well, I'm delighted it's not what they want to happen. Then when you go, what are the safeguards?
1: Where are the safeguards? Is that my, where are they, Gary? I don't... There's
0: nothing. Now, here's here's another one you might like, Michael. They say that the new new offences new of incitement to hatred are needed and should prohibit. I'll give you one of them. And this the phrasing on this is very important. Deliberately or recklessly inciting hatred against a person or group of people due to their association with a protected characteristic. Not their possession of a protected characteristic. Their association with a protected characteristic. Now, the report goes on to say this. The victim of such a crime does not need to have the protected characteristics themselves simply to be perceived by the perpetrator as being associated with it. And one of the examples of association it gives is someone who works providing services to the trans community. So you could actually be, according to this report, if you said something about an NGO dealing with these issues, and those people themselves are not transgender, they're not gay, they're not disabled, they're not whatever, they are now associated with, and they will now have protection under this.
1: Can we just go back? I want to re- just rewind a minute. to You know the... the the stipulation where it says that it doesn't matter if a speech or a piece or publication does not in and of itself contain language which is incitement which is which is inciting to hatred or is hateful or offensive on the but rather it is couched in such language as it could that it is that is its intention but it is not explicitly uh it's not explicitly done so and it would be the response we therefore presume of the court to interpret that so much of this is incredibly it is regressive this is part of this pushing the legal clock back back to this in in other areas like the idea that we could not be held legally responsible or morally responsible for the acts of our parents or or our ancestors, that's gone back in the day Gary when Queen Elizabeth I was Queen of England a, uh, there was there were acts called the recusancy acts, and under the recusancy acts, you had to, if you didn't go to church on Sunday, which was the law, you had to attend the church of the services of the established church, the Church of England. Uh, you had to pay a fine, and so certain Catholics who were called recusants would pay these fines. Now sometimes, then the law was changed, and they would have to attend a communion service. I think once or twice a year, at Easter or something like that. Some people came to the queen and said to the queen, you know. These people are going to services, but they don't really mean it. They look like they're going to church, they look, they're doing all the things they're supposed to do, but they don't mean it. And Elizabeth famously responded, I do not have a window to look into men's souls. So, and the principle that was established already, but that was an explicit statement of the principle that the law judges on. Actions. We do not, we can't look into men's hearts to see if they're being sincere or decent. Or, you look at what they do, we, and, but now we're abandoning the principle of that because we're not looking at what people do, we're looking at what people say, we're looking at what people think,
0: and we're going to make the ju- laws of that. This is barbaric stuff. I'll give you two more provisions from the report. Again, this is a report. It may not go into legislation, but this is what the department, after a year long consultation, thought should be in the report. A presumption in relation to hate speech on a public forum will be needed. So what they want to do is that if you post something on, let's say your private Facebook page and you have 10 friends, you have you know, 50 friends, you have your family and your close friends, yeah. and a complaint is made about that, because it is on social media, there will now be, assuming this would be uh, put forward into legislation, a presumption that that was designed you were making a public statement. This wasn't for your small circle of friends. This was for everyone.
1: No, I'm sorry. No, you, you try that mate. Try that again.
0: They want a presumption that any anything deemed to be hate speech that is put on uh, social media or anything they can determine as... Posted on your Facebook page. Yeah, uh, a public forum, any online platform that they will consider to be a public forum. It is should now be considered by a court. The default presumption should be, it was intended for the widest possible public consumption. That's the default position. The default position. Now, speaking of the default position, there is one other line, and you're going to love this one, Michael. Yeah. It may also be useful to provide for a limited number of presumptions in the new legislation. These are sometimes called reverse burdens, and they exist already in other places in our legislation. For example, in relation to the misuse of drugs. In normal circumstances, the burden is entirely on the prosecution to prove every element of an offence. Yes. Where there is a presumption in law in favour of something, the normal burden of proof is reversed. And the defence must prove this is not the case, on the balance of probability.
1: So we're now getting rid of the presumption of innocence? Yes. Well, what would he do there?
0: Michael, it's about getting those prosecution rates up.
1: Oh, sweet Jesus. Do you know what? Nobody cares, Gary. You care, maybe. I care. Maybe five other six people care. Nobody cares. And we will make as much noise about it as we can. And we will talk to other people to make noise about it. And we will try and make reasonable engagements and discussions and debates with people. But these people are empty shells. They are filled with this nonsense. But the fact that not only will we not hear words of demurring from the the rights organizations in this country but rather it will be precisely the rights organizations who will be the most enthusiastic supporters of this legislation tells you everything you need to know about the progressive left in this country once upon a time jesus once upon a free free speech i mean do you remember? Well, you don't remember it neither. But the the Berkeley Free Speech Movement and all that, all that stuff. I'm aware of it. This used to be the purview of, and and the sacred territory of the left, the right of free expression.
0: Say what you want. Let it all hang out. God Almighty! This is Kafka. So I I want to I want to close because the 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 report is fifty four pages long. But here here is the one I want to close on Michael and. Um, the report does talk about protections and exceptions but i want to give you what it actually says yeah there should be a number of protections and exceptions in order to protect free expression and genuine contributions to public discourse and the furtherance of the progress of humanity jesus the legislation is not intended to stifle legitimate debate or matters of public policy academic discourse or artistic expression, only speech which is for the express purpose of inciting hatred, i.e. promoting or encouraging negative feelings against those perceived as associated with with protected characteristics to a degree likely to lead to harm or unlawful discrimination against these people. The protection proposed here would apply to anything a reasonable person would consider to be a good faith, genuine contribution to one of the listed fields. Now, there is nothing else in that section, Michael. On that topic. So there should be a number of protections and exceptions. That's it. There's no examples. There's no listing. There's not even a fucking dream of what these things might be. There's just, oh these should be there. Well what should be there? This is this is what you are going you're giving to the to the minister and to TDs to explain what should be done here. And you haven't bothered to go and this is the form that we've seen in other countries or this is the form that seems to work well or these are the ones that and, and there are balances and trade-offs it's just there should be these things end of discussion well i'm sorry saying there should be these things but no follow-on is fucking useless it's in fact more than useless because it's slightly insulting you've got 54 pages of how you can make this easier to prosecute but you couldn't give a single example
1: uh, I don't. Uh, there are lots of questions you could ask, but I mean, I suppose I, the the one I would like maybe f- to leave the listener with to consider and you to consider is this: under this legislation, is it possible? And I'm not even saying likely, but is it possible that under this legislation, if it was a, if it was to evolve into full speech protections, would it be possible to prosecute a YouTube shit poster for getting his pug to say, to do a Hitler
0: salute? Actually, there was one one other thing, I suppose, and this is about the, the diagrams in this thing. There's a diagram called "Who Does the New Legislation Really Need to Protect?" and it said the following types of prejudice were identified consistently by participants as giving rise to instances of incitement to hatred and hate crime throughout. So, the following types of prejudice is what this document is. This is about one of the uh, one of the. So, there's there's six things in this, Michael. Six different categories in this. Uh, diagram, and if you were looking at this yourself now, because we, as I said, we'll link it down below, it's the one on page 25. Those are racism, religious intolerance, hate against people with disabilities, other characteristics, which is you know, uh, address, socioeconomic background, that sort of thing, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, misandry, freedom of expression. What? The six types of prejudice. Given under this are racism, religious intolerance, hate against people with disabilities, other characteristics, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, misandry, and freedom of expression.
1: What does that mean? I'm sorry, I genuinely well, don't know what you mean.
0: They have listed freedom of expression on a document, on a, a diagram, listing types of prejudice.
1: So is freedom of expression a type of prejudice?
0: I don't know, because then it, you know, they say the following types of prejudice. There's a diagram with six of them. But then when you go to the next page, there's only five of them. And it doesn't say the freedom of expression. However, on the diagram, under freedom of expression, it says there should be no protections. Hate speech is free speech. Nobody should be protected more than anyone else. But it's clearly a diagram of the types of prejudice identified consistently as giving rise to instance of incitement to hatred and hate crime. So
1: nobody should be more than anyone else. Um, So doesn't that kind of... On the face of a gut, any defence that you might say of as an artist or a poet, novelist, a comedian, I mean it's the comedians that I think are really <laughs> I'm worried about here to the extent that I'm worried, but rather than the artists. They as long as the artists say the right things, well they probably will say the right things anyway because you know they have to get the grant. And if they don't well their friends of the right kind of people and people understand what they meant. But if you're a, as I say, a shit poster on YouTube, and you teach your pug to do comedy salutes, you might end up in clink.
0: Oh, yeah. so we'll see what that becomes when it goes into legislation. There's yep. lots of stuff being written currently in the Irish Times, primarily about how you know there will be a high bar, and they want to avoid prosecution, uh, prosecutional overreach, and they want to avoid this, they want to avoid that. They don't want this to become a culture war thing. You know, they want to protect freedom of speech. I can't find any of that in the report. Yeah,
1: did you notice the other thing, one of the, one of the articles in the Irish Times talking about this seemed to imply, and I'm sure it didn't mean to, it seemed to imply that people who were opposed to this legislation were actually, what was it, sort of far-right, neo-fascists or Nazis or something? Surely not. Yeah, it, it, I'm sure it was just a sort of... a Oh, an editor, a failure of editing. A sub-editor you know, didn't quite miss a comma out somewhere or, 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 a, or a smiley face in but it seemed. But that's what they're doing and that's what they're going to do. Anybody who's opposed to this, we all, we all know why they're, you're opposed to it, because you just want to be able to go around saying horrible, nasty, racist, homophobic things.
0: So I, I think the line you're, you're talking about is it's talking about Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice, and it says, uh, this was a Connor Gallagher article says she is also aware the bill will be used as a rallying cry for far-right and racist groups worried the law will stifle their activities such groups have already started protesting the issue
1: yeah i mean other than other than us who's been protesting it much i mean are are we part of that are we far-right gary are we racist well we're all racist i know that i've read my
0: I mean, it does sort of go back to the, the discussion we had on media positioning of protests and how all protests have nutters, but the point at which a protest becomes a far-right protest or a far-left protest very much depends on the actual positioning of the people reporting, generally rather than the prevalence of those groups within the protests. So if this was a different bill, if it was something that was being protested by the left would there be something along the likes of you know, far-left radical groups which are uh, worried about the law start protesting it? Maybe. Maybe you would be. I don't know. Anyway, listen, well,
1: I suppose we'll leave it there for the time being. We shall come back to it, I know, in the future. But for the time being, I suppose we'd better let the, uh, the listeners get ready for our very exciting talk on the Canadian-European trade agreement which we're planning to have on Sunday. I'm ex- as excited about it tonight as I was two nights ago when you informed us that was what we'll be talking about on Sunday.
0: Anyway, the um, the hate crime legislation, we will keep you up to date on it as it moves forward. Helen McEntee has said she wants to have the, uh, the heads of the bill signed off by Cabinet before Easter. So we're looking at a for a bill of this sort, a relatively quick turnaround.
1: Oh God, yeah, I mean let's, let's face it. If there's one thing we see modern politicians do, it's anything which is going to impact on basic freedoms and democracy, it will go through quickly, lickety split. If it's something I don't know difficult like I don't know, planning for the nature of two-bedroom bungalows, that could be that will take two and a half years of close consideration.:
0: Months, months of awe. Absolutely, could yeah, ruin yeah. the uh, ruin the skyline. That's the sort of thing that needs more than ninety minutes.
1: And maybe a maybe six months consultation period with Antashka, but we won't go there So for, for the time being. Enjoy your weekend, and we will join you again first our Sunday miscellany. All the best.